bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock kneed, coughing like hags. We cursed through sludge till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, blood shod. All went lame, all blind. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, listeners. Welcome to episode five of The Dreaded Lurgy with Kylie Fonsell and my delightful co-host who just gave us that wonderful reading. Laura van Lillyfeld. What you just heard was a uh, an extract from Dulcet to Coromest by Wilfred Owen. Not Correct. Siegfried Sassoon, <laughs> as I so embarrassingly made that error earlier this week to my eternal shame. And um, the soldiers in that poem may have been glad they lost their boots because what we are talking about this week is Trenchfoot. Trenchfoot indeed. Something known by different names, a selection of very creative ones shelterfoot boot bite water bite chilled foot and for a short time when it was still lumped as a part of this and not a separate disease it was known as frostbite today it's usually known as an immersion foot injury or non-freezing cold injury you can get it in other parts of the body not just the feet but it needs to be distinguished from warm water immersion injuries like paddy foot and bridge foot which we're not dealing with today Trenchfoot no. is enough of a movable beast on its own. Now, who gets it? Kylie, tell me Tell me who, who do you think would get it? Anybody who has to wear cold, wet socks and shoes for a prolonged period of time. That's a good guess. Yes. That's a good guess, and you're right. So I'm going to start with the wild card, though. People who stayed in um, Anderson shelters. That seems were, unfair. It does a little bit. You're sheltering from, I mean, the Blitzkrieg, and oh, <laughs> sorry about you. You're also going to get this strange disease because you're not lying down or your feet are damp. My, oh my God. That's just, I mean, really, Anderson shelters basically, they varied in size, but they're basically a corrugated iron shelter, which varied between something that you could fit two pairs of bunk beds in or a dustbin. I swear to God. So it's not terribly surprising that you ended up with your feet in a bit of a puddle all night waiting to get, you know, flattened. Others that would fit the criteria, the refugees in Calais, after the quote-unquote jungle was destroyed and they were kind of forced to live completely rough, many of them fell ill with trench foot. Not surprising if you're just crossing half the world wearing a pair of running shoes. Other groups that are vulnerable to it include homeless people. They're subject to a huge variety of issues. We need to talk about homeless person's feet more often, I feel, because it's always been a bit of a thing for me. Every time I see a homeless person, they're usually limping. And I'm like, what happened to your feet? And I thought it was diabetic neuropathy or just like ingrown toenails. But it hadn't occurred to me that in 2020, it might actually be trench foot in some cases. I know, trench foot, right? It's so synonymous with World War One that you wouldn't think for a second that it's something that would happen today. And it does. Yeah. It really does. Farm workers get it and um, people who get literally nothing, no sympathy from me whatsoever, people who go to music festivals. That one I find a little bit delightful. The idea that an injury that was common for World War I soldiers is also common for people who go sloshing about to Glastonbury. No sympathy for the stupid. Wear gumboots, you dumbasses. You know it's, got, it's a music festival. They're all muddy. I think some of them bring in mud for that authentic feel. So we know that it's definitely World War I. But how far back does this actually go? Because soldiers have fought in mud before, surely. The thing is, you have to have a shoe. You can't get this barefoot. You can get other things if you fight in mud barefoot, I imagine. But it's very it's very much the combination of having a wet shoe or boot and prolonged exposure to cold, wet conditions 
which affect that shoe and boot. So this starts more than 2,000 years ago and continues up to the present. I think it's possibly an issue in modern-day armies. It was definitely an issue for the British in the Falklands War because the Falklands are, if nothing else, boggy and cold. And it also affected people in uh, the Napoleon's rather... What's the word I'm looking for here? Optimistic, if doomed. Uh, when he was trying to invade Russia and then subsequently retreating from failing to invade Russia. Soldiers on that expedition were sleeping inside dead horses to keep warm, so we can assume that boots and socks and leggings and stockings and pants of all descriptions were soaking wet and probably half-frozen. But it is most well-known from World War One. Here's something you might probably know by now. Laura and I are both history majors. We are indeed. We're a little bit obsessed. And so I dove all the way in with the British Medical Journal. And I have a new crush, Kylie, and I'm not ashamed. His name is Basil Hughes. He was a medical officer attached to a company and in 1916 wrote about his experiences treating soldiers. Love him. Now he came up with three stages of Trenchfoot. And I am super curious about how close these three resemble modern day understandings of it. So the first one, the first stage we have is your foot goes numb and then there are some pins and needles maybe and then your foot swells but it's a soft kind of swelling so if you your foot is squidgy. Stage two, your foot becomes and I quote a solid rubber ball so a no longer squidgy now just like a rock and then the third stage we escalate really quickly into gangrene. 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 Just all the way there. I, everything, every time gangrene comes up, I want to say that escalated fast. Because gangrene, as we all know, is irreversible. And one of the only things you can do about gangrene is to remove the gangrenous part of the body. So goodbye foot in this case. Yeah. Lopping feet off oh. left, right and center. I mean, military medicine is quite a lot about cutting things off. But even so, they would prefer to avoid it, I presume. I think something like 75,000 British troops in World War One alone were affected by... Like, had to be had to leave the army entirely because of trench foot. I'm not sure how many died, but I think this number is similar because it was also the pre-antibiotic age. Let us all give thanks for antibiotics, the much-abused drug class, but something which has, you know, contributed to the longevity of the human species. Otherwise, we would all really be dead. Um, okay, so you want to know how Captain Hughes's uh, symptoms are broadly similar to the ones that they report today. Now, here's an interesting problem. Historically, he was looking at soldiers, which have quite a different sort of etiology to the injury to somebody who goes and gets off their face at Glastonbury and forgets to change their shoes. So... Some doctors think there might be a difference in the symptom presentation and sort of the progression of the illness, depending on how exactly you get it. So if you are walking around in wet shoes for a day, but you go home at the end of the day and put your feet up and change your socks, for example, the way a festival goer or a farm worker might do, or if you have damp shoes for sort of prolonged periods of time, days and days, for example, as a refugee in Calais or a homeless person or a soldier might do. So... Broadly speaking, the symptoms today are tingling or itching, pain, swelling, cold and blotchy skin, numbness, and a prickly or heavy feeling. So I'm guessing that the soldier whose foot was a rubber ball probably felt numb and heavy. I imagine so. And um, blisters can form as well. As this article puts it, leading to skin and tissue falling off the injured foot. There's an image to carry us all through a dark winter night. Bits falling off you. You don't want bits falling off you. So yeah, but the thing is, right, there's a small problem here. Some sources will always say people may notice that their foot changes from white to red. What if your foot's not white to begin with? For example, if you are, oh, let's talk about World War One in particular. If you are a, a troops from colonial India or Africa or, you know, the Caribbean, we are also in the war, but You're perhaps also you are fighting. of African or Asian descent and your foot is not going to be 
as obviously going from white to red as that of Tommy Atkins from inner city fucking Manchester. And here's the thing. This is a much more of an issue because it turns out that people of African descent are much more prone to developing trench foot. They're not sure why. They haven't. Man- nobody's managed to figure this out yet. Also, I don't think anybody's really looking. But there is a bit of a diagnostic problem there. And as a result, I think a lot of cases in World War One of troops from, you know, the Caribbean and Africa and possibly parts of Asia just weren't diagnosed. Many, for example, African troops weren't combatants. They were support troops. So they were doing a lot of the digging and the clearing out and the tromping back and forth. And I can confirm to you that they were not fed very well and they certainly weren't given premium kit so i think we're looking at it really the numbers that were being given for the one are probably white troops yes not everybody and that's not including conflicts that were going on elsewhere in the world at the same time that were like peripheral to the western front so we're looking at a bit of a uh, an under-reporting situation here and it's certainly an under under diagnosis oh imperialism and racism thank you once again diversion ahead so military boots are not all created equal for 80 years, which is to say until about two-thirds of the way through World War One, the British Army and adjacent fighting forces dealt with something called the ammo boot, which was just above ankle length. It was hobnailed, it was stiff, and, they, and it was not a very comfortable thing to wear. One could say that one's foot adapted rather than the boot. Ordinarily, you wear in a pair of boots, these wore in your foot. So calluses, blisters and whatnot were very, very, very common. They also ate socks, apparently. And they were built for, this may not surprise you at all, judging by the description I just gave, they were built for durability, not comfort. They were unlined, they had an iron heel plate and a toe plate, and they had an iron studded leather sole, which meant that they were nicknamed crunchies because the studs in the sole, aka hobnails, crunched when you walked. And uh, they were bad when it came to preventing anything happening to your feet because they were also worn with puttees which consisted of a long narrow piece of fabric which was wrapped tightly around the upper part of the boot sometimes covering the laces and then often up as far as the knee so covering the lower part of the leggings or trousers the soldier was wearing puttees are like a boxing wrap for the lower leg they provide support for the ankle and um, they supply a little bit of protection as well and they also help keep your pants clean up to a point but the thing is they're tight or snug at least, and they get wet because they're cloth. Wet sock inside a wet boot that was already rubbing the Jesus out of your feet, and then you had a wet patty up to your knee, and you had a wet trouser. And frankly, I think that if you could feel your feet 10 minutes after putting these on and going, you know, to your forward trench, you were doing better than most. Soldiers often also had to walk quite long distances to get to the trench. So and it was always muddy. In World War One, the Battle of Ypres, which happened from the 19th to 22nd of October, the first Battle of Ypres, I should say. From the 12th onward, they had rain and snow. In Gallipoli, in 1915, from November onward, they had snow, rain, and copious amounts of mud. So your uniform was wet all the time. You were cold. And it's not like you could nip off and go back to your hotel room and warm up there. No, you had to live in a back trench once you were off frontline duty. On frontline duty, you were awake for hours at a time, and you had wet socks. And so most of the injuries from trench foot in the World War One sort of context happened before 1916. They didn't stop happening. Early um, 1917, a new sort of boot called the field service boot was introduced to the British Army. These were higher and they were more sturdily constructed and they were waterproofed, which meant that people got you know, a better deal from their boots. And also there were more efforts to produce sort of waxy socks and to supply troops with more socks. The American army had a similar problem when they eventually joined the war in 1916 because they had been using something called the russet marching shoe since the Civil War. A marching shoe to our modern ears doesn't sound comfortable, and indeed they were not. And in 1907, they switched to the trench boot, which was more comfortable, but also not waterproof. 
And then in 1918, as a result, because once Americans joined the war, and we know nothing about Americans, they like being comfortable, these trench boots were redesigned to be waterproof and sturdier. Right, so there was, those are known as the Pershing boots. So everybody tried to improve the boot to save the feet because a soldier that cannot walk is a soldier that cannot fight. Thing is, they were all using leather. And the thing with leather, unlike rubber, is that leather is waterproof, not water-resistant. And you can't make leather 100% waterproof no matter how much dubbin you apply. Polishing and waxing leather do help, but no leather boot ever manufactured by humankind will keep your feet completely dry if you have to stand in water for very long at all. They also get heavy and they break. Leather begins to get fragile. And when they're dry, they chafe. If you're a World War I soldier standing in wet leather boots for days and days, getting, you know, shelled, chances are your feet are going to be very, very miserable feet indeed. And I have a story about rubber boots, actually, which is just a fun little example of imperialism in action. So in 1915, the North British Rubber Company started making boots. These boots, made of vulcanized rubber, were much more expensive than the leather ones, and so weren't provided as, shall we say, freely, generously, as they could have been. Now, provided that these boots weren't worn while the men were marching and were saved just for the trenches, they did help manage trench foot. A small memorial of sorts was erected outside the factory, which is now called the Hunter Boot Factory, still based in Edinburgh. But I have a sneaking suspicion that the rubber that they used, because they started in 1856, came from the Belgian Congo. And if anyone has done any reading on King Leopold II in the Belgian Congo, you know some bad things happened there. Nothing good happened there, ever. Ever, ever, ever. So now there's a boot sculpture. It's lying down. It looks like a very nice bench. So a fun little bonus fact there for you on boots. Rubber has always been a bit of an imperialist thing, though, because um, apart from being cultivated in the Belgian Congo, it was also cultivated in um, British territories in Indonesia, Malaysia, Borneo, sort of the Singapore region. Singapore is a major rubber trading city. They also use a lot of indentured Indian labor. That's one of the reasons the Belgian Congo started forcing people to grow cash crops is because there was that competition, like a competitive really? rubber provider. Here's a strange, here's something I hadn't considered before. So this is the Belgian Congo. So what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. In World War One and World War Two, Belgium was invaded by the Germans. So a country that owned a massive colonial property in Africa and supplied the British with rubber was at the same time as this was all happening, invaded by the people the British were fighting. So there's a weird little historical oxbow lake. Diversion complete. So now I'm interested in treatment because Basil Hughes describes a variety of treatments and I've done a bit of digging on other forms of treatments and things that they looked at. And I can group them into two to three categories. We have the rubbing drying situation. Most of the treatments involved some combination of these three factors. Rubbing drying, some kind of sock changing slash sock warming slash sock drying, and various oils and fats. Sometimes oh. it would be the foot itself that was greased. Sometimes the, the sock was greased. Sometimes the foot and the sock were greased. Some of the oils used include whale oil, which is made from the blubber of whales, oil of mustard, a whole bunch of other oils that I didn't fully understand as part of a modern life, so I didn't write them down. And that's how they managed it. Rubbing, drying, some kind of oily sock, sometimes an oily sock and then a, a, a thick sock and a thin sock and a different combinations. Each company seemed to have its own kind of take on what exactly should be done. How did they fit all those socks into the boots? Because the problem was the boots were already uncomfortable. So what happened there? Aha! 
they were the men would often have to wear boots that were two sizes too big to make space for all of that greasy sock. I know trench foot's bad, but something in me rebels at the idea of a greasy sock. Like no, just and no. sometimes what they would do is like if they didn't want to take their shoes off, they would just pour oil of mustard into their shoe with their foot in no. there with the sock. I mean, okay, I guess I guess there are worse things to worry about on the Western Front, but all the same. Guys, unlace the boot. You have to release the pressure. Problem is that your foot's been in there. Not that your socks are... Oh, guys. On that, I have a fun little quote that summarizes, how shall we say, the issue that they faced. The military eventually realized that much of the problem derived from, and here, Kylie, is a turn of phrase, hygienic negligence among officers and men. Or, as McPherson noted in the official documents of the Great War, the failure of, and oh, here it comes, I love this, making a fine art of the toilette of the feet. Fine art of the toilet of the feet, which I feel more people could profitably take up. What did the toilet of the feet entail? Uh, just, I mean, just taking basic care. It seems like basic hygiene had to be monitored by the commanding officers. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. There was like a feet inspection situation happening. I have seen photographs of that. I wonder what was going on. Here's an interesting fact. Many of the men recruited to fight in the British Army during World War One were, in fact, quite weak to begin with because they were often from like low socioeconomic brackets and they hadn't experienced for you know the most of their lives good nutrition, ever lived in comfortable surroundings or had a chance to really get into a habit of constant good hygiene. Because you know, I think until the 1960s, bathing every day was considered to be a feat and unnecessary. Even now, you will find elderly people who are like, oh, no, you bath twice a week. You make yourself weak otherwise. It's possible that some of these soldiers for the first time in their lives were actually being told you need to be clean like you can't be semi-grubby this is not working for you because it was completely the norm back home to bathe once a week change your socks two or three times a month we take cleanliness very much for granted today i mean and a lot of people even in south africa can't bath every day and yet go to extreme lengths to make sure that they that hygiene can be maintained because we're so obsessed with it in the 21st century but it really wasn't the norm until shortly after world war ii gosh we must have been very stinky in the first half of the 20th century so today um, it's roughly the same. Minus the whale oil. Um, <laughs> I was about to ask, Kylie. Gosh. <laughs> only because there aren't any fucking whales left. Today, what you do is basically, because it's not soldiers as often, it's more people who are getting cold wet feet voluntarily, like hikers and trail runners and mountain bikers and whatnot, is that you prevent it by keeping your feet dry. You have a wet shoe and a wet sock, you stop. You take them off, you put on dry shoes and dry socks. You can wear a vapor barrier boot, which is to say something with like a rubber or rubber-ish lining. However, if you have very sweaty feet, because this is a thing that comes up from time to time, because you can get, here's a scary thought, trench foot just from excessive foot sweat. Good um, heavens. You can use an, an aluminium antiperspirant on your feet. You should always make sure your shoes fit and are not pinching or rubbing anywhere. And you are supposed to keep your feet clean. Thank you, World War One. And check for any developing foot wounds at least once daily. Don't sleep in your socks. Don't sleep in your shoes. Allow your feet to air dry. Huh. Should you be unhappy enough to get trench foot, on the other hand, your options are not particularly brilliant because the treatment is supportive. There's no drugs involved unless you develop a secondary infection or gangrene or something, in which case you get antibiotics. But basically, if you do develop trench foot, the first thing is get out of the cold, wet environment as soon as possible. Do not rewarm the feet quickly. It will only hurt more. You have to rewarm the feet gradually using room temperature, very much like thawing chicken. If that don't put you off chicken, nothing will. Elevate the feet, bed rest, and air dry. Don't put them into hot water. Don't pop them into near a bar heater. Don't do break out the hot water bottle. No, absolutely do not break out the hot water bottle. That is the worst thing you can do because re rapid rewarming causes pain to spike. 
because it increases the demand on the your, your poor little capillaries in your feet are trying very hard to reopen and get circulation going and if you bung a heat source directly against them they try and oh, sort of dilate to and then it hurts and we've all i mean we've all had cold feet and tried to warm them up you know how it burns for that if you've had very very cold feet laura and i both went to Rhodes university in makanda university currently known as Rhodes in makanda and we can attest that having cold wet feet is, is a miserable is an absolutely yeah. miserable bitch Agreed. And we're two, we're two like middle class white kids who had an option of going back to a res room and um, warming up because we had bar heaters. Although our bar heaters were on our ceilings, which was limited use for trying to warm your feet. As as were ours, safely out of reach of I don't know us what we could do to it. Although I, one did that was burn a safety down. decision. Yeah, but that's because somebody hung a pair of nylon pants over it. Oops. I do remember very very clearly a friend of mine had a better bar heater than. I did. In a, she was in a different. She lives in a different dorm, and I remember going to her her room one day in winter and doing basically a handstand against the wall to get my feet. Are there photos? No, it was long, long before camera phones. Okay, so once you are rewarming the feet, you should not put a dressing on them, or if you do, a very loose dressing, a light dressing. And the thing is, initially during what is called the pre-hyperemic stage, your feet are numb. When your feet cease to be numb, things get very uncomfortable because that's when the pain starts, and the pain can continue for days weeks or even if you're very unlucky months and a lot of people with trench foot actually report problems for the rest of their lives specifically world war one because it tended to be a lot more severe before it got treated so it turns out that you can use nsaids which is to say aspirin ibuprofen paracetamol usually ibuprofen early on or even opioids but they tend not to work that's devastating if an opioid doesn't work, please assume that things are very painful. So you have to use amitriptyline, which is a old school tricyclic antidepressant. And if that doesn't work, you use gabapentin, which is a anticonvulsant, I believe. And nobody knows if any of these things work. Patients report that some patients report they work fine. Others are like, ah, they're kind of effective. Others are like, ah, 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 nothing works. Nothing works. And basically, you just carry on doing this until the foot has returned to normal. And you monitor for infection. And if infection arises, you treat that. And if gangrene starts up, you cut off the offending bits. And well, really... Best of luck. Prevention in this case is really easier than cure. I have a new appreciation for my feet. I'm going to go now. I'm going to give them a scrub, a pat, a general love. Just be like, well done, feet. I love you. Please don't do that to me. Please never get trench foot. I mean, not, you, you and I don't do things that would lead to trench foot. I mean, I don't see either of us taking multi-day hikes across wet terrain unless forced. No, no. I think I'm probably safe. And that, lovely listeners, brings us to the end of trench foot. Uh, now, if you want to get in touch with us, first of all, we love that you listen to us. You have some options available to you. You can email us at thedreadedlurgypod at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-D-R-E-A-D-E-D-L-U-R-G-Y-P-O-D at gmail.com. I'm not spelling gmail.com. It's 2020. Or we have Instagram at thedreadedlurgypod. So same spelling. Or we have Twitter at Dreaded Lurgy. That's everything so far because we have not ventured onto or TikTok. Facebook as yet. No, I, that's probably not going to happen. Though. I don't know that we are in the TikTok demographic. I don't think we can worry about TikTok. <laughs> Although if we do, you can do it because I don't know what TikTok even is. Uh, so folks, take care. Wash your damn hands. Sneeze into the crook of your elbow or a tissue which you then dispose of immediately. Do not be like the man I saw yesterday in the supermarket wearing no mask and gloves. And touching the fresh baked goods with his manky, manky gloved hands. Don't be that man. Wear a mask. Don't wear gloves. Sanitize your hands. Stay home. Be cool, guys. Be cool. Just do the thing. And with that, we'll catch you next week. Goodbye.